Leo, welcome to Outlier Investors. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Daniel. Really excited to chat. So, you know, today we're going to talk about Sousa Ventures, which is a firm that you co-founded uh, and you're a managing partner there almost a decade ago in 2012. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about kind of the origin story of the firm. We're going to spend most of today talking about your investment philosophy. I'm going to link to in the show notes a bunch of the stuff you've written that I think is um, super fun that you recently moved to Substack. So thank you so much for, for coming on. You know, I, I always love to start um, just to get people from kind of zero to one on your background with just a quick sketch. And, and you have a very interesting background. Can you just give people a a little bit of an idea of your background before founding SUSE. Sure. I'll try to do like the one minute background. So in high school, I was really into like math and math competitions, went to college thinking I'd do a math major, uh, ended up not liking it, finding it a little too theoretical. So I switched to computer science. So graduated with a computer science degree, basically right at the, you know, a year or two after the end of the dot-com bubble bursting. And I got really lucky. I, uh, I spent a few months at Microsoft out of college because uh, they were the only ones that hired me out, out of college. And I, I didn't really love it there. But I had a summer internship with a guy that I really like working for. And he called me a few months into my time at Microsoft and asked me if I wanted to join the startup he was at. And, you know, I wasn't loving Microsoft. I loved working with this guy. I felt like I learned a lot. So sort of without really knowing anything about that startup, I ended up joining early on. And uh, it was a really lucky break because that, that, com- that company was uh, LinkedIn. And I joined when it was about a dozen people. Wow. Super early. Yeah, uh, like I said, really lucky. Ended up working there for a couple of years, uh, kind of from the you know 12-ish person phase to about 50, 60. Uh, then left, went to Google, uh, worked there on payment fraud detection for a while. Uh, these are all as a software engineer. Uh, and then spent four years after that at a location data startup, doing a lot of like data processing software. And so kind of had about 10 years as a software engineer. And then, uh, as you mentioned, started SUSE basically like end of 2012, early 2013. And I've been doing venture capital for the last uh, almost decade. I think our 10-year anniversary is in like uh, two months. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, just when you first got exposed to early stage investing, because obviously it's not uncommon, you know, most investors, uh, you know, at least in Silicon Valley, like venture investors have some sort of a technical background and have worked at some early stage tech companies. What was your first exposure to like venture and investing? And what was your, you know, kind of process for deciding to take the leap into building SUSE? Yeah. So the angel investing exposure probably preceded SUSE by just a few months. So the context is, so both LinkedIn and Factual, the, the uh, location data startup I worked at, there were you know, 15-ish people when I joined. There were 50, 60, 70 when I left. And I enjoyed that phase a lot. That was sort of the Series A and B phase. And I was actually thinking about starting my own company and I had some ideas, but I really wanted to like learn more about, well, you know, like what is seed stage like and not just Series A? Like, what do you do when you, know, you have no code, you have no team, and you're just getting started? And so I wanted to learn more about that. And I felt like Angel investing uh, was maybe a good avenue to do that, you know, to like try to do a couple of small checks, personal checks every year, you know, try to learn from like the founders I, I worked with uh, and then use that to maybe start a company a few years down the line. And so that was my original interest in angel investing. I hadn't ever thought about venturing as a career, but a couple of months after I got interested in angel investing, I got introduced to the other founding partners at SUSE and they were all angel investing at the time. SUSE didn't exist yet, but they were thinking about starting a fund. And there were three people on the business side, and then they wanted somebody more on the technical side. And so they invited me to join them as like kind of an angel in this informal syndicate or informal group. And I thought, oh, this is great. Like I'll co-invest with them for a little bit. Maybe we'll start off on together. We'll see how it goes. And I'd say my logic at the time was basically, it's a lot like venture capital investing logic, which is like kind of asymmetric upside versus downside. Right? So it's like, I'll angel invest with them. 
if I hate it, like I could just quit in two months or six months or a year. And it's pretty easy to taper off because we were kind of doing it formally anyways. But if I really like it, I'll learn a lot. Maybe it'll help me start a company. Maybe I'll really like it and I'll just become a VC. So it just sort of felt like, you know, a lot of upside and very limited downside. And also it felt like a kind of opportunity I wouldn't really get, which is, you know, how, how many like random engineers get asked to like co-found a venture fund, right? Like it's, you know, it doesn't happen that often. So I also felt like I, I should take it because if I didn't take it, I'd probably regret it. So that was basically the decision for you just saying, okay, I'm going to take the leap. And so you weren't necessarily banking. You didn't know if it was going to work out, but it was basically, yeah, the upside was great, was interesting. Downside was relatively mitigated. Take the leap. Yeah. Like I, I had, I, uh, it was literally like I spent four years at Factual. I left in December, 2012. And this kind of came up like two, three weeks later, like in you know mid-December, I think late December. And I was planning to just take like two or three months off after Factual to learn more about seed stage companies before starting my own. And so when this came up, I was like, oh, I was going to take some time off anyways. Why not do this during that time and see where it goes? Um, and so that was that was the logic at the time. I mean, amazing timing. It's like a power law opportunity <laughs> in terms of where it landed. You know, you getting invited to join three other people as a as an engineer that had only been investing a couple of months. Um, I, I want to talk for you know just a couple of minutes about those early days. And I, I guess you know the question I want to ask is: I think anyone who's going to be listening to this has likely heard of Susa and is probably you know impressed by or knows of some of the great investments that you guys have have made. You know, today, none of that obviously was probably super clear early on in those early days. And so the questions I want to ask is. What were some of your goals uh, in the earliest days of SUSE in terms of what you wanted to build as a, as a firm? And, you know, what helped you learn and adjust and refine that? Because I know, I don't know if you guys were always focused on seed stage, but I know now that, you know, just a big focus is building a top tier seed fund. So did it take any exploration to try to figure out that focus? I think the goal has always been like, hey, can we be, you know, a top five seed fund? And even at that time in 2013, I, you know, today there's thousands of funds. Back then, I think it was low hundreds. The goal wasn't necessarily to be like, hey, we have to be number one. But also it wasn't like, hey, we want to be like above average. It was like, we really want to be one of the best. We want to be a fund that, you know, founders want to approach, like we're on their short list as they're starting a seed round. And so that was that was like the goal for the fund. And I think we're definitely exploratory in terms of like, well, what does it take to get there? And I think initially the way we put, positioned ourselves is we were a fund that focused on companies using data in interesting ways. Uh, Cause we had a couple of people on the team that had experience with that. Me on the technical side, a few people more on the business side. And we thought that was like an interesting lens 10 years ago. Cause like, it was like the big data wave and it was, you know, it had started like a year or two prior, but I don't think there were a lot of funds focused on it yet. And we felt like it was a good focus area and we had like kind of good domain expertise for it. And so initially we positioned ourselves as like, Hey, if, you know, to other investors, we mostly got our deal from other investors in those days. And so we talked to other investors and we'd say like, hey, if you're looking at a company in the space, we write small checks, we can be really helpful because we have experience here. So like you should, you know, like, can you can you invite us into the round or choose the companies that you think are interesting? And I think in the early days, that was, you know, good just to get our, like, get us out there a little bit more, like see more companies, start working with founders. And that was the short term uh, strategy. But over time, I think we recognized pretty quickly that like, the brand you build is basically like, what did founders say about you? And also like, which companies have you backed? And what I mean by that is like, like if you look at like one of the, you know, like really legendary funds like Sequoia, like, I don't know if they have a specific brand of like, oh, this is the best SaaS fund or something or the best marketplace fund. I think it's more like, well, they backed like Amazon and Google and you could rattle off a bunch of names and founders are like, oh, I want to work with like, I want to be part of that group. I want to work with, you know, the investors that helped those companies succeed. 
And so I think we've always thought, you know, over after the first couple of years, we started really thinking about that for SUSE as well, which is like to be a top fund, the key thing is like you want to back as many of the best companies as possible. And then you want to be a good partner so that, you know, five years later when you're meeting another company and they want to like, you know, they want to know what SUSE like to work with, you can say like, hey, you should go talk to the, you know, the founder of Flexport or the founder of Robinhood or somebody like that. And they'll tell you that like we're a good partner. Uh, and so that's been really the focus after the first couple of years. Hey, I want to ask just a, you know, a couple of questions around the seed focus. I guess what I'm curious about there is, you know, seed investing is is somewhat unique just in terms of, you know, it tends to be much more qualitative than quantitative. You're talking to teams that are super early on. Was the, you know, so for all of you, was the decision to focus on seed philosophical? Was it around like, per, you know, personality and personal preferences and it just fit you guys? How did you approach making that decision as opposed to doing later stage or you know, having an open-ended? I think there's a few aspects here. I think philosophically, we like early stage the most. Because it's it's formative, so like on the one hand, you know, there's like it's more collaborative, and you have like a little bit more like potential to like help a company steer onto the right course, you know. Versus like if it's like a Series C company, they've kind of figured things out, and they just need more money, and like you're probably more of like I wrote you a check, and you know if you have a question, maybe I can help, but you're mostly out of the way. So we like the like more engaged and collaborative aspect, but I think tactically also like seed feels like the easiest place to start. Because literally, like, if you want to go raise a Series B fund, you need, like, you know, $500 million. Who's going to give you $500 million if you haven't invested before? For a seed fund, you could start with $20 million or 10 or even, like, I've seen people start with, like, one, right? Well, they'll do, like, a micro fund where they do, like, 20, 50K checks. So I think it's much easier to start. I would also say seed is collaborative today, but it was even more collaborative uh, 10 years ago. So, like, if you look at later stage rounds, like a Series A, usually, like, a single firm does the whole Series A. There's not much room for anyone else. But seed for like a long time has been collaborative. So, you know, you can have like three seed funds working together. And so that also felt like an easier wedge in because you don't have to be like the only investor that a founder has to pick. You can be like just in the top three or top five. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting hearing you talk about that because it's like strategically, it does just make a lot of sense that if you're a new, fu- if you're a new fund, if you're a new firm, it makes sense to try to attack that kind of earliest wedge um, really early on. You know, on the flip side, what have you learned about the challenges of seed investing? And I'm sure some of them you probably expected. I'm curious if there are any that were unexpected or surprising. And especially, you know, part of where I asked the question, sorry to jump in, is I know there are people listening that kind of probably think about investing and, and don't understand the unique challenges of seed. So I think it's just interesting to kind of recognize that one, it's very different, it's at least if you're more of a qu- uh, quantitative investor and, you know, just what you've learned over time that surprised you. Yeah, I'm not sure if this was a surprise, but I think that lack of data is like definitely the biggest thing, which is sometimes companies have, you know, like a seed stage company might have a team of eight and they have a product and they have you know, three or four customers that pay them 50K or something if it's a B2B business. And that's sort of maybe a best case, right? And then like the the worst case in terms of data is like, it's a founder, they might not even have a specific product idea. They're just like, oh, I'm going after this sector. And I have like a general thesis of like what I want to build, but I'm still figuring it out. And maybe if the founder is like really experienced or has a great track record, like they can go raise a seed round just off of that. And so there's this wide spectrum where like in the best case, you have a little bit of data and the worst case, you basically have none. And so it's really all about like analyzing the market and analyzing the founder and like trying to understand the landscape, but you're really betting on like, it's, it's almost, you know, it's a lot of art, right? Like where you're betting a lot on these more intangible or qualitative things versus quantitative data. And that's definitely, you know, it's hard. And I also think because it's qualitative, it's much harder to do like lookbacks, you know, five or 10 years later, 
right? Because it's hard to remember like, well, what was the impression I got from this founder 10 years ago? Or like qualitatively, how hot was this market 10 years ago? Like that stuff is like almost impossible to remember versus like, if you look at data, you could be like, oh, this company is growing 60%. This one is growing 40. The 61 did better. Like I should make sure I look for 60 plus percent in the future. Like that's a much more like tangible, like specific learning. Yeah. Do you guys ever save decks from early pitches? Because that's something, you know, that I, I've always found kind of staggering is for a successful investment going in back and sometimes just honestly cringing at just how atrocious this first deck was that kind of enabled you to make the investment. I don't know, I'm trying to learn from that. Honestly, like kind of def- uh, by default, save most decks just because like we're in Gmail, right? Someone sends you an attachment to Gmail, like you have it forever. <laughs> um, and it is interesting to look back sometimes just to see like how companies evolve, both both ones that we invested in, but also maybe ones where like we missed it. It's doing really well. Now we can go back and look at the deck and be like, oh, is there something here that maybe we missed or like underweight or overweight? Yeah. You guys are also interesting in that you have, uh, you know, four focus areas, uh, lo- you know, enterprise software, logistics and supply chain, fintech and healthcare. And, you know, I, I want to ask a couple of questions, but one, um, you know, you we've talked about how you decided on those four focus areas and kind of the process there. I think it'd be interesting for everyone else listening to kind of hear your approach as a firm, because I understand you started out more generalist and then decided to focus in. What was that process like? What led you to those four focus areas? Yeah, I would say it was organic. And this ties into the previous conversation, which is like, I think a lot of the best funds, like the reputations come from the companies they back. And we got pretty lucky in the early days. So we invested in Robinhood and I think it was like, you know, 18 months into the fund or maybe even less, maybe eight months into the fund. We invested into Flexport like 15 months into the fund when we were just starting out. And Flexport's now like a $9 billion company. Robinhood went public. Um, I think they're also nine or 10 billion right now. And what we saw pretty quickly was like, you know, as those companies started, you know, raising a series A and their series B and kind of getting some spotlight and like tech stories and all of that, we started getting more and more investors and founders reaching out to us in those sectors. Right. And so instead of being like, Hey, like we heard Suso was an interesting fund to talk to its chat. It was like, Hey, we're a FinTech company. We saw you back Robinhood. Like, you know, like that was a good bet. We think you like, you should make a good bet in us too. And we saw that more and more as we made more investments in those spaces. So for example, there was Flexport, but a couple of years later we invested in Stored, which is another unicorn in the logistics space. And now that like even like more like strengthens that logistics story even more. And so for these four categories, we have like enterprise SaaS and logistics and uh, healthcare and fintech. In each of those categories, we generally had like one or two good bets in our first couple of years. And then it started this flywheel of like, well, more founders in those spaces reach out to us or more investors in those spaces want to co-invest with us. And then we'll make more like good investments in those spaces and that strengthens the flywheel. And so I think that's where like those four categories really merged for us is, you know, probably like 85, 90% of investments are in those four areas today. Yeah. I mean, no, it totally makes sense as a, you know, the flywheel you describe of making an investment in an area, it ends up being an incredibly successful, you know, company that ends up drawing not only just investors, but other founders, probably LPs as well, too, that are interested in that area. Um, but I want to ask kind of a different question, which is, I know um, we're going to talk about Humba Ventures in, in a second and kind of how this relates, but, you know, something you've talked about before is like investing as a way of learning. And, and so I guess the question I want to ask is, was there anything those early successful investments in each of these spaces talk taught you about the industry and did they help you build conviction on not just the company, but like this space actually really matters and we think it's much bigger maybe than we did before we made the investment or much more interesting. There's some shared lessons with all of these. So, you know, like if I had to pick a few early companies that uh, we backed in space, so 
for enterprise SaaS, I think like Mux is a good one. They're a video infrastructure API. For logistics, there's Flexport, so they do freight forwarding. For fintech, there's Robinhood, so that's like a you know free uh, mobile first brokerage. Uh, and then for healthcare, there's VizAI, which is like a stroke triage product that uses deep learning to look at like uh, scans of uh, brain scans of stroke victims. And so I'd say like one one lesson that applied to all of these or like learning from, uh, came from all of these is like that founder market fit piece is really important. And so in each of these cases, like the founders had good experience in their domain. So if I remember like the Mux founders, the video company, they previously built a video startup. They sold it to like a larger video startup. They worked there for a few years, kind of saw it was broken. For Flexport, the founder, Ryan, had spent like 15 years in logistics, which was kind of crazy because I think he was like in his early 30s. So he'd literally been doing this since high school. For Robinhood, uh, the two founders had previously built infrastructure for high-frequency trading funds. And then in the healthcare company, the, the founder was uh, a doctor by training. So I think that founder market fit piece, that was pretty universal. Maybe for specific lessons, um, I think on the logistics side, like uh, Ryan is just like an incredible like recruiter, salesperson, just like super charismatic. And it was interesting to see like how much of an asset that was. And like one when, when, like fun story I tell people about him, like to give a sense of like, he's like always on in a really great way is I remember once like I was sitting in SF, I was having like uh, lunch with an engineer and, you know, Ryan walked by and he's like, oh, hey, Leo, like we just chatted for like a second. And I, I think I just casually mentioned like, oh, like I'm just having lunch with like this engineering friend who worked at, you know, Airbnb. And Ryan immediately like, turns to the guy, he's like, oh, like, what do you do at Airbnb? Like, do you know we're hiring? Like, you know, do you want to like, have you heard about Flexport? It's just like, like just <laughs> always on. Uh, and I thought like, it's such a different mentality like that you often see in these like, in the, the best founders where like, they're just so, like, they're just always like thinking about like, how do I grow my business? And I think it's like, you know, as an example, like maybe I talk to you and I'm like, oh, like Daniel's really smart. He's got like a cool design background. Like that was a really fun chat. I think Ryan would go on the podcast and be like, oh, Daniel's really smart. Hey, we're looking for a designer. Do you want to join us? Like you could, you know, like here's three roles we're hiring yeah. for. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think seeing that personality trait and how effective it was, was a really good learning. Because I think when I see that in other people now, it's like, it, it's, it's a really great data point. And maybe one more specific lesson is like on healthcare, this is more healthcare industry specific, but so Viz AI, like they they do uh, um, they look at brain scans. They basically like try to triage like if the stroke patient can be treated at like some local hospital or if they have to be you know helivacked into like the local like hospital without like the the regional hospital without like fancy technology because it's a really serious stroke. And what we saw there was like the tech was really good, but the key thing was like how do you get into the workflow piece, right? Which is like some tech gets a scan, it goes somewhere, that scan gets like sent to a doctor, like who makes a decision. And it's not just like, hey, can you take a picture and diagnose like what kind of stroke this is? It's like, how do you get into that workflow and like actually become, you know, something that people use that's like, you know, part of their day makes their day easier and is like seamless versus something where it's like, oh, I have to take the scan. I have to go to like this other computer. I have to upload it. I have to like that kind of thing just doesn't work well. And so I think a lot of what we've seen in healthcare is like the tech has to be good, but you have to really integrate into like these daily workflows. I think that applies to other industries too, but like especially healthcare. Yeah. I mean, that last point you you made leads me a little bit to a question I wanted to ask, which is, you, know, you talked about founder market fit and that last example around, yes, you can have this great technology, but you actually have to have pretty nuanced, deep understanding of how you need to integrate to build a successful healthcare company is a great example of like why you need somebody with experience and expertise in, in this space. But I, I want to ask a little bit of a flip question, which is, you know, another comment that you made and we talked about for quite a bit is just taking away the wrong lessons from things and being mindful about how you interpret. And 
And I know one thing that, you know, is often repeated is that you want people that are relatively new to a problem. You don't want people that really understand a space too deeply because then maybe they're not going to innovate within it. And so I'm curious, just your take on that. Do you believe in that? And do you believe that there's some some sort of ideal mesh of like willing to rethink all the rules from first principles, but deep understanding that makes that founder market fit super powerful? What do you think about that? I think a lot of times the founder market fit is maybe more on like the sales side, like understanding customers, understanding their goals, understanding how to approach them. Because I would say that's where like people burn a lot of cycles, right? Because, you know, maybe like I'll just pick some example, like maybe, you know, I want to make hardware for like I don't know, LED monitor manufacturers staring at my screen right now. If, you know, like maybe my marketing strategy is like, oh, I'll just do like AdWords. It's like, well, maybe they don't use computers or like they're they're in China and they don't like they're not looking at AdWords because AdWords is banned or whatever. Like there could be all these reasons where whatever kind of like, you know, napkin, like random first gut instinct I have is just way off. And if I knew that industry, like I would know like, oh, actually there's a conference that all of these people go to and I should go to that conference or like there's this trade magazine that's actually like just print and not even online. And like, I need to like get an article in there or get ads in there. And I think that's where you can like run a lot of cycles where even with a good product, like, well, you can't find someone to buy it. I think where like the more innovative stuff happens is often more on the product side, which is like, if you understand the customer and you understand what they need and you know, like maybe you know what tools they currently use, that's where maybe you can have like a very different idea of like, hey, everyone's used to using like Excel, but they need like a bespoke tool that does this. Or maybe like they're using software, but actually like my team of analysts that's like sitting behind like a thin software layer, that's like a much better experience. And and that's where like you can have kind of more disruptive, innovative things there. And I think that's where sometimes like fresh thinking can really help. And sometimes, honestly, it's still like somebody that's an insider and they, they just like they see an industry, they see it's broken and they've been thinking about it for 10 years. And they're like, I think this is the right solution. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to talk about Humbo Ventures. Um, and, you know, I don't want to give away the story. So I think it would be interesting if you could just tell a little bit of the backstory and kind of describe, give the quick elevator pitch for what Humba Ventures is and why you decided to build this, because it's kind of a super interesting mini fund underneath the Sousa Ventures umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's about, you know, 10% of the size of our seed fund to give some context. And and the gist of it is, so when we started Sousa, we were very generalist. Right. So we're kind of like, hey, we'll invest in anything. You know, we just want it to be something that we think will be a big company. And with that thesis, like, you know, or with that approach, we invested in some of the companies that helped us get expertise in these areas that we're good at now. Like we invested in Robinhood before really investing in fintech or invested in Flexport. That was like our first logistics investment ever. And so I think on the one hand, we built expertise in these four areas. On the other hand, I think sort of having this like, you know, openness to new categories is what got us here in the first place. And and so one thing we've been thinking about is like, well, how do we add like a fifth and sixth category over the next couple of years? Or like, what if one of these four categories ends up being like not a great category for us since the next few years and we have to replace it? And I think what we are trying to do with this smaller fund called Humba is have a little bit of this more exploratory approach where we have, you know, five or six categories in mind. And these are, these are things like Web3, although I think this week that's a ba- uh, bad, bad week to be investing in Web3. <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to yeah. say that word. <laughs> uh, like climate tech, energy, defense, ed tech, some of these areas where we think they're really interesting and promising, but you know we don't have a lot of expertise yet. And what Humba does is it writes checks that are generally closer to like 500K, uh, whereas our seed fund will do checks that are a million and a half or two. And the goal is just to do a few concentrated bets in each of these categories or as many of these categories as we can, learn about them, try to help the founders out. And then, you know, hopefully over the next couple of years, as we gain experience, 
maybe some of these Humber categories will become like Corsusa categories. Mm-hmm. How do you think about the right way to approach learning from investments? You know, something you and I have talked about before is like, I think a lot of investors have, I know I certainly have, you know, a goal of learning whenever I'm making an investment. And yet it often turns out that that actually might be much harder than you think it is. And it may be just said another way, you typically don't learn passively. You need to really engage, you need to work with the founders. So what lessons have you learned about what it takes to actually truly learn from an investment and, and deliver on that promise or that idea? We tried this more like informally about five, six years ago, where uh, instead of 500k checks, we did a few like 50, 100k checks in a few categories, just like see like, hey, can we learn about, you know, biotech, for example. And I would say like a lot of those companies ended up being pretty interesting and like are doing well, but I don't think we learned a ton. And the reason for that, like, I think there are a few observations here. One is you're not going to learn much if you're like, if you write a small check, just because, you know. If you're like the second or third biggest investor uh, for a founder, they'll they'll chat with you, they'll spend time with you. Um, you can kind of like you can try to help them, they'll try to help you. If you're like the ninth biggest investor, like you know, realistically, they should be spending their time with other folks. I think the other thing is like, I think the areas have to be kind of you know tangentially close enough to what we're doing so we can be helpful. And so, for example, if you're like, hey, I'm doing like a material science startup and we're building like a new kind of polymer. Even if I want to learn about polymers, there's basically like probably like almost nothing I can help you with, right? And so from that respect, like if I can't help you, like you're not going to want to chat with me a lot anyways, I'm not going to learn from you. It's sort of like a lose-lose. On the flip side, if it's something tangential, like let's say I know a lot about SaaS, but I don't know anything about SaaS in like the energy sector. Well, I can, I can invest in like two or three energy startups that have a SaaS component. And it's almost like a tip for tower. It's like, hey, I'll help you on the SaaS side. But over time, I'd love, like, maybe you can introduce me to a few energy experts or, like, kind of point me to interesting companies or technologies. And that's sort of, like, more of a win-win. And so I think that's the approach with Humbo, which is a lot of these sectors, like cybersecurity or, you know, or climate tech, it might have, like, a SaaS model that we're familiar with or a fintech model that we're familiar with. But in a sector, we haven't really worked in before. And we're trying to kind of use that to, like, expand a little bit. But it's not, like, a huge leap. It's more like a step. I want to ask one more question and then I'm going to move on to a little bit more of a rapid fire and kind of talk, you know, um, Leo investing, founding, you know, philosophy. Um, and the question I want to ask is, you know, like Web3 is a really interesting area and, you know, you're not supposed to talk about it this week. A lot of stuff is not, not, so, not so great stuff is happening, but that's OK. The question I want to ask is, you know, for an area like Web3, it's interesting because uh, it's been around for a number of years, at least crypto generally. You know, it's kind of been part of it's been co-opted and rebranded as Web3. But it's also an area that, at least in my experience, is very, very, very wide open in terms of people don't actually know, aren't, aren't able to articulate a kind of longer term vision. And so it's hard to actually understand how this plays out over a longer period of time. But it's also a little bit difficult to figure out, like, what are the areas of Web3? And, you know, something that's very common is people will make market maps. And so I'm curious, you know, for you guys, just and this can even be this kind of make believe exercise. But for an area like Web3, where it maybe feels super open ended, do you go into that already knowing here are kind of the themes or the areas that we want to invest? in or is it much more of a we're kind of not going to have any defined approach we're just going to try to meet with a bunch of interesting teams and maybe learn that over time do you think about that for me it's more the latter right which is like i'll meet with companies and over time i'll have opinions that coalesce and and sometimes it like it, it's literally like i'll meet a company and i'm like if this is great maybe want to invest sometimes it's like oh i actually really like this idea but i think like maybe it's not the ideal founding team in my mind maybe the ideal founding team has like a different type of expertise so then I might start kind of looking for other teams that, you know, like other teams approaching the same problem, maybe in different ways. 
but like a lot of this sort of just happens over time as I meet more and more companies where, you know, the first time I meet a company doing like something, I'm a newbie. The second time I'm like a newbie that knows a couple of things. And by the time I meet like six companies in a space, like I feel like, you know, I'm definitely not an expert, but I feel relatively well versed in it. And so a lot of these theses sort of like, I think they, they form over time versus being upfront. There's just so many different categories at seed. And, and I think most seed investors are relatively high volume, right? Where you do like five investments a year and not one. And so I think it, it just makes sense to, you know, if you have, if you're going to do one investment, you could try to like focus on some category and just explore the hell out of it and be like looking for the one company that does this. But if you're doing like five a year or even more, I think it, there it makes more sense to just kind of like see what comes in and then, you know, kind of see what stands out uh, from the companies that come in. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like the more intellectually honest way to approach it of basically just saying like, I don't know what I don't know. I'm going to have to figure that out over time and kind of, you know, figure out the, the dots that make up the constellation and then connect those over time bit by bit by bit. Okay. I want to move on to a bunch of philosophy. Uh, one of the things that, you know, that we talked about before is just this idea that parada is, uh, you know, very overrated. Uh, talk a little bit about how you think about parada and, and why it's overrated, why it feels overrated. I mean, I think for a few reasons, I think one is for a lot of companies, like the early stage equity is just so much cheaper than later stage, especially in the last couple of years. It's kind of reset in the last few months, but a lot of times like the seed rounds at a $15 million valuation, the series A is at like a hundred and there's only a little bit more de-risking. And so if you're putting in Parada, like you're, you're paying a you know six X higher price for maybe like a company that's maybe is like 50% or hundred percent, like more valuable, you know, based on fundamentals. I think the other thing is it's often colored a lot by like Duke Pratt is often colored a lot by uh, relationships versus fundamentals, right? So you tend to like want to keep supporting founders you work with, they're expecting that support. And so again, like it's less about what's the best place to put the money and more like, oh, I want to like put money because people expect it to preserve relationships. And so I think from that standpoint as well, I think just like putting in twice as much early on and saying like, hey, like, you know, like we'll do like minimal Parada, but like our funds just focused early on. Um, I think it's really clear to the founder and then, you know, like, and they also don't have to worry about like Parada competition later on, um, but also it probably maximizes your multiples. Yeah. Is that something that, so I'm guessing, you know, from that example you gave, it's probably something literally that you guys have kind of codified within the firm and that you literally set the expectation with founders early on, Hey, we're going to write as big a check as we can early, but we're likely to not invest <laughs> Parada going forward. We're not so aggressive that like, you know, we don't do any parada, but I, I do think in general, like we, we tend to skew probably something like, you know, 60, 70% initial and like the rest follow on, you know, I think no matter what, like we'll support founders, right? Because like, if they let us lead or co-lead the seed round, like we want to make sure that we help them raise a series A and part of that's like doing our parada, participating in, at least in some way and helping them get the best series A possible. But I think also like just with the size of our fund, I think people are aware that, you know, the main investment we make is at seed and not at series A or later rounds. Yeah. Makes sense. You know, one of the ideas you have that I really like, um, and it's, you know, sounds kind of obvious, but I think just like your nuanced take on this is, is really interesting is that success is idiosyncratic and failure is predictable. Um, talk a little bit about, I guess, how you've learned that and why that's surprising, why that's like an interesting insight, why it's useful. I mean, I think coming from an engineering mindset, I thought I'd come into venture, kind of meet a thousand companies and be like, Oh, here's, you know, I like I wrote down some data for each one. I analyzed it a year later, and here is like the you know the patterns that made like the top ten, the top ten, and not the you know the bottom ten. And it doesn't really work that way. I would say like the failure patterns are pretty common, right? Which is like, you know, you built a product, but like there's no customer for it, 
or like, or you don't know how to sell. And so like, you know, you kind of burn a bunch of money while not being able to like make any revenue or another pattern is like companies often overspend, right? So like you raise your seed around, you're like, cool, like let's get a fancy office and hire a team of 20. And then if you do that too early, like you're going to burn through a bunch of money before like you make progress to enough progress to raise the next round. So those things are pretty common. And I think there's probably like 10 or 20 areas where like almost all failures are like those 10 or 20 things. The success part is like, well, sometimes you timed the market and got lucky. You know, sometimes it's like you had some really strategic partnership that helped you like, you know, get like your first hundred customers or thousand. It's like those things are such one-offs. Maybe an analogy is like, like what makes somebody Einstein? Like, I don't know, like there's only one Einstein, right? But like what makes somebody like flunk out of college? Well, there's probably like five reasons, right? It's like, hey, you had like money troubles or like poor work ethic or you picked the wrong major. But like, it's going to be a few common things, but the really outlier successes are just like much less predictable. Yeah. You know, I'm curious then, like, if if you found ways at all to thread that insight into when you're meeting with a company and you're kind of diligencing them and you're trying to get to a final decision, because it seems like maybe one takeaway is you're looking for predictable failure patterns. You're just trying to be aware of those, I guess, to know and raise certain red flags. But the like, how do you apply success as idiosyncratic <laughs> to due diligence seems like a challenging exercise. What were your thoughts on that? I think I mentioned this earlier that like a lot of companies, like a lot of successful companies spike in some way early on. And and I think that's kind of what you're looking for, right? Which is like, there should be some idiosyncratic spike because if it's kind of a bunch of things that are pretty good, but nothing's incredible, then it feels like a much lower chance that the company itself will be incredible. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Because it feels like then everything is more predictable. Yeah, there's nothing that's idiosyncratic about it. One of the ideas you have, I think you've just articulated it in a really wonderful way. Um, and we're going to talk about this from a couple of different angles is that, you know, startups at the end of the day are a bundle are a bundle of risks. And, you know, it's really helpful, I think, one, from a founder's perspective of it's not trying to get to a certain number of users or get to a certain number of revenue. Like, yes, those are, those are great goals, but more than anything, you know, progressing a company, building a company is an act of de-risking and, and dealing with some of those bundles of risks. Talk about just what that means, this idea that startups are bundle of risks and how that influences how you encourage founders to kind of approach company building. Yeah, I would say like, I, I think the later you go, especially with public companies, like the value of a company is based on like fundamentals and finances, right? So it's like, hey, you make $100 million a year. You know, if your growth rate is double, you're worth this much. If it's 50%, you're worth like less but it's, it's like more formulaic. And so it's all based on like your metrics and your growth rate at early stage. I think it's less about like, what are your metrics and more like, what's the percent chance that you're, you know, you're going to be a $5 billion company someday. And what happens is I think people assume like, Oh, if I move from hundred K in revenue to 500 K in revenue, my valuation should like five X, but it doesn't. And the reason is like, if nothing about the company has changed and all that's happened is time has passed like the chance of you being a $5 billion company hasn't really grown, right? But if you think more about like, well, what are what are the risks or question marks between you today and you like the $5 billion company? And, you know, there's going to be a bunch of those. Maybe it's like, can you beat this competitor? Maybe it's, you know, can you like close a 50K account instead of just 10K accounts? And so all of those things, like every time you prove one out, people go like, oh, like before you only had 10K accounts. Now you close like your first 50K sale or 100K sale. Now I think your chance of being that $5 billion company is like 2% instead of 1%. So I'm going to double your valuation. I think in the early days, that's the right way to think about it, which is like, what are the key risks? And the bigger the risk that you can address, like the more credit you get when it comes to like financing and your valuation. 
Yeah. And I'll try to find this. You know, one of the wonderful things I read that you, it's a, a more of a presentation. I think it's related to a blog post that you have, but you have this kind of wonderful little simple slide deck, I think for a talk you gave probably seven years ago or something at this point. But, you know, one of the kind of equations that was in there that I really liked is that the value of your company equals the ideal outcome, meaning what the company could look like in a best case scenario times the chance to win, aka the probability of success. And I feel like that's maybe the clearest way I've ever heard that described and articulated. Was that, you know, a novel insight? Is it something you just kind of came into over time? I don't know if it's novel. It came to me as like I was watching companies struggle with series A's because I think for a long time, you know, there was this bar of like, oh, for a SaaS company, you need a million dollars in revenue. And people would think that that was some magic number where it's like, well, you know, if you're 900K, you're not going to raise a series A. And if you're at a million, you're golden. And the truth is like, what I realized at some point is like, well, the million is not about like, oh, you need a million in revenue. It's more like that's a proxy for like, usually a company has figured out some of these early risks. Like, is this the right product to build? Well, like if it's a shitty product, you're not going to get a million in revenue. Right. Or like, have you figured out scalable sales? And like, if it's only the founder selling, you're probably not getting to a million in revenue. But if you have like, if you figured out how to like make a salesperson effective, that's, that's how you get to a million. So the million was less about the number and more about like, well, what does this represent in terms of the company maturity? And I think once I realized that, I started thinking like, oh, like what the Series A investors actually want to see is that you de-risk some of these key things, like some of these key risks that they don't want to take on. I think actually like one analogy I came up with at some point that I like is it's like a triathlon. Right, which is like there's you know, there's a, a swim, a bike, and a run. And if you're like a world class runner and cyclist, but you can't swim, it doesn't matter if you make like, you know, the running twice as fast, like you're gonna drown. Right. And so so <laughs> never so, gonna finish. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the key to like a good triathlon is not can you save, you know, ten more seconds on your fast run? It's like, hey, can you go from not swimming to swimming or from swimming really poorly to swimming like decently? Right. And so I think the, the company uh, value piece is kind of similar to that. Yeah. I want to ask, you know, one kind of secondary question around that, which is, um, you know, so if, if kind of, uh, you know, the process of growing a company is the process of de-risking it, there's obviously then the, you know, a mistake you can make is just focusing on the wrong risks. So are there any heuristics you have of like what the right risks are versus the wrong risks? And is that pretty clear and easy to tell given a business or does it require some kind of wrestling with, I don't know, that question, that existential question as a founder? I mean, I would say sometimes the risks are like based on the person, right? So like as a blanket statement, I think if you're a very technical founder, one risk is you focus too much on product and not enough on sales. Um, and if you're not a technical founder, usually it's not really a risk. So that would be like one example. I think like management and like ability to like hire and recruit and manage and grow the team, that's that's a risk that sometimes you can, you know, you can see addressed because of somebody's past work history. Sometimes it's based on like kind of asking some questions about like, well, how would you build your team? Or like, how do you think about managing the first 10 people? But I'd say that's another common one. Another common risk is like just not talking to customers, right? So it's like, this is sort of the, are you building the right product risk? And so I think the more somebody's opinionated where they're like, trust me, this is the right thing. I'm just going to work on it for two years and then launch it. Like maybe they're right, but a lot of times like that's a good way to burn through two years of runway and then find out like you didn't build the right thing. Um, so, so there's definitely like common risks like that. And and some of them you can ask about and some of them like you probably won't know about until, you know, after launch and after like, you know, well after the investment. Yeah. 
I, I want to ask, you know, a very different question, which is kind of the emotional journey side and managing the highs and lows of just working in venture. And, you know, this is just to, you know, state it, I would say the emotional journey is much more critical for founders who are in it every single day dealing with the day-to-day struggle. For investors, you kind of get to free ride a little bit, but you have your own emotional highs and lows, you know, depending on how the company's going. Um, you know, and I know in the previous interview we did, we talked about a guide to the good life and this, just how important kind of stoic philosophy is, is to that. How have you approached that? And is there anything you've done to try to get better at managing the emotional side of the journey or the emotional side of investing? Yeah. I mean, I think just being 10 years in helps, right? Because I think there's, it's not like there's no surprises. It's more like there's fewer surprises. Um, so, So as an example, like I remember the first time I invested in a founder where like, you know, three weeks after the investment, they're like, actually, I'm going to pivot in a totally different direction. And that like kind of freaked me out. I was like, oh my God, like what happened? Like, did I miss something? But now like I've seen it a few times and it's like, you know, the fourth time you see it, it's like not as dramatic as the first. Uh, So I do think time and sort of exposure helps. I do think a lot of it is just like personally getting comfortable with the fact that, you know, surprises happen. And I think the last part is just trying to have like this mindset around like, well, is this in my control in some way? Or is like, is there something I could do about it? And if there is, I'll try to like, I'll try to do what I can. And if there's not like, I, you know, I'm not going to make a fuss about it. And I think that last one's probably the most important one, which is like the goal ultimately is, you know, help founders succeed and help them build big companies. I think like kind of wasting time on criticizing somebody where it's not constructive criticism, but just criticism or being like angry or frustrated or disappointed or ecstatic, like all of those things in, in the end, like don't really help that much or at all, or maybe they're destructive. And so I think it's more like, just like, well, here's the situation that's evolved in some way. Like, what can I do now to make it better, you know, for, for me and the founder and the company? I want to ask, you know, a couple of uh, closing questions. And, and one of them was, I would say probably the most tactical article you've written, at least that, that I've read that I've come across is, um, and I loved it, and we'll share it in the show notes, is this idea of becoming your future self. And basically just as a founder, you need to constantly do this exercise of as a founder, but you could also say as any professional, you need to do this exercise of projecting forward, you know, six, nine, 12, 18 months and making sure that you're always becoming who you need to be to be successful at that point in time. Talk a little bit about that idea and just any advice you have for founders about becoming their future self and kind of managing that journey. Yeah, so I'd say where this stems from is what I realized is like, I observed pretty early on that like some founders, and honestly, I don't think it's a founder thing. I think it's a human thing. Like you want to avoid discomfort, right? And so there's things you really like doing and there's things you don't want to do. And it's very easy to kind of fall into this trap where you just do the things you like or you avoid the things you don't want to do. And that can be pretty detrimental to a company because it's pretty easy to become a bottleneck if that happens. And what I mean, for example, is like, let's say you're a CTO, right? And you like coding a lot, but at some point, like you're spending more and more time managing. And if you don't like management, it's very easy to be like, well, I'm just going to code. Like I won't do a lot of management. People can like self-manage. I'll try to find, you know, people that can do that. But in the end, like it's hard to build a big company that way. And eventually, you know, either you need to like become a good manager or you need to hire someone. And if neither happens, like the company's going to stall out. And that illustrates both sides, right? Which is like, you like coding, so you don't want to let it go. And you don't like management, so you don't want to do it. But like, eventually you have to do both. And and when I talk to people about this, like, I think it kind of makes sense to them, but it's very hard to internalize of like, well, you know, like, am I actually doing this? Or like, should I be coding? Like, you know, because it's early on. And I think one, one thought experiment that I came up with that I think is helpful that is in this blog post is like, 
think about your job in like a few years or like you know, maybe it's a year, maybe it's two years, maybe it's five years, the company's going to look a lot different, right? Maybe it's 10 people today, but in you know, a few years, maybe it's 100 people or 500 people. And you want to just ask yourself, like, well, if I'm in this role in five years, what am I, what will I be doing in that role? And then you don't have to like make a 180 today, but you want to kind of slowly move towards that over time, right? So like if you're coding today, but you're almost certainly not coding if it's a 500 person company and you're like the CTO or VP of engineering. And so you want to kind of think about that and think about your goal and just like, you know, every day or week or month or whatever, kind of want to be like, okay, like maybe it's okay. I still code, but maybe I should spend like a few hours less on it every month. So that in a year, like I'm just doing management, or I'm just doing recruiting or strategy or sales or whatever it is. And so I think that's kind of a good thought experiment in terms of, you know, trying to get you to where you need to be, whether, whether you like, you know, that path or not. And if you really don't like it, maybe it means hiring someone that wants to take that path. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like it's, you know, this exercise of like awareness and, and just being aware of how you need to be changing and where you kind of the path of travel you need to be going down. And then just, you know, once you have that awareness, then you can start making those changes slowly and, and start moving in that direction, uh, which is really powerful. You know, one of the things that we talked about, we didn't go much into depth then, um, but I want to spend just a second on is you have this quarterly investment review. So you've been investing for 10 years now. You know, one of the things that you've talked about and said before, um, you know, I think any investor would agree with any venture investor is that, you know, the feedback cycles are really rough, just meaning if, especially if you're making an early stage investment, it could take eight to 10 years for that to play out successfully or not. And so one of the exercises you've, you, you've moved to is sitting down each quarter and looking at all the investments you've made and thinking about what's changed over the past couple of months. What, you know, maybe talk a little bit about the value of, of doing that. And then secondly, if there's any top two or three things that you have come to mind through that process that you think might be helpful to share. The specific lesson ones is a little bit tougher because there's just so many, but most of them are like really small and tactical. Like I'll, I'll, I'll give you a random one that, that's kind of come up for me a few times recently, but I've kind of seen it for the last 10 years is like, you don't want to pivot in the middle of a, a fundraise, like, because it just, it kills the story and it makes it really hard to raise with investors. If you're, you know, like if you're pitching your idea to an investor, they like it. And then a week later they come back to you for follow-up questions. You're like, actually the idea has changed. Um, so that'd be an example where like, I saw that once or twice and I was like, oh, this is really bad. Like I want, you know, like not, not necessarily from a company perspective, maybe it pivots right for the company, but it's really bad for like a fundraising perspective. So make sure you don't do this in the middle of a fundraise. So that'd be like an example of a lesson I write down um, after, you know, seeing it once or twice with a few companies. I think the valuable thing here is like, what I've tried to do is make it really methodical. So it's not just like I sit down and I kind of think like, okay, what have I learned in the last quarter? I think it's more like, okay, there's, you know, Seuss has invested in, let's say, 150 companies over the last 10 years. Here's like 40 I work with closely. Let me go through every, like each of the 40 one by one and think about like, what did they do in the last three months that is interesting? And I'll even think about it as like, like more structured in terms of like, what do they do on sales and fundraising on recruiting on like product and try to come up with like, are there insights or lessons there I should be learning? And I think that kind of exhaustive brute force approach is actually pretty useful because it's similar to like other avenues where like, if you just try to brainstorm, you come up with a few ideas, but if you're really like rigorous about it, you come up with a lot. And like an example here is like, I've seen companies where like, you try to hire people through your employees' networks. And if you just say like, hey, Daniel, like who are three, like who are good engineers, you know, maybe you come up with like three or five. But if I say, hey, let's go through your LinkedIn one by one. And like, you name every good engineer, you come up with like 40, right? And so I think, I think making it that like kind of more rigorous, like methodical process is really valuable. 
Yeah, makes complete sense. Okay, I have a bunch more questions I would want to ask, but I'm going to have to pick one because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, And the question I wanted to ask is, you know, you've now been doing this with your partners, meaning building SUSE, doing early stage investing for the past 10 years. One of the things I saw you ask recently, I think this was around another, um, someone kind of asked for questions and, and you had chimed in and asked, what are the most, what are the most successful people still struggle with? And so I wanted to ask you that question, kind of 10 years in, what do you find that is still just difficult, challenging, uh, frustrating about investing that you still have to grapple with day to day? Oh man, I would say like by far number one is, and these actually it's number one and two, but they're very interrelated is like saying no and time management. Cause I, I think, you know, because investor is such a like outlier driven business, you know, really like one investment in five years could like make or break, like make your whole career. And so you're always kind of like in the back of your mind, you're like, is this company the one that like I need to, you know, meet? And if I say no, am I going to be kicking myself in like five years? And so there's this tendency to like try to be, you know, open-minded and it's easy. Cause like, I'm a curious person. So I want to meet companies, meet founders, learn from them. And so there's a temptation to say yes, but on the flip side, like, you know, my calendar is so full now that it's like, it's very hard to one fit in more meetings and two is actually have time for anything but meetings. And so I think that's a balance that like I've really struggled with. And to be honest, I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, this has been so much fun, Leo. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, really had a blast. Really enjoyed chatting. And thanks for having me, Daniel. Thank you.